Hello, and thank you for joining us. My name is Molly Carmichael with Zonda's Inspirational Leadership Series, joined by the industry's best in all things real estate. These leaders are literally designing our future for many generations to come with new communities, home designs, technology, retail centers, infrastructure, and so much more. This series is about who they are, how they got started, who inspired them, and their journey to the top. So let's get started. Hello, and thank you again for joining us today. We are going to hear from Spencer Razkoff. He's the former CEO and co-founder of Zillow. Previous to that, he started Hotwire. They sold that for $700 million. And now he's involved in several startups like Paso, Path, and so many more. He revels in being a coach and a mentor today with many more careers and I think inventions to come for Spencer. He's really a genius, certainly an inspirational leader, no doubt. So please join me in welcoming Spencer Raskoff. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to our inspirational leadership series with some of the most fascinating people in our industry throughout the country. And today we are joined by none other than Spencer Raskoff. Spencer, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So just a huge variety of talent. I'm just going to let you guys all sort of a quick little summary here. He's the co-founder and former CEO of Zillow for over 13 years. He's on the board for TripAdvisor. He's the co-founder and partner for 75 and Sunny for uh, Recon Food. Uh, he's the co-founder and chairperson for Q. He's the co-founder and chair for Picasso. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. Also the co-founder and chair for PATH. And he's a board member for Barrow Bank. And I'm sure he's going to be the co-founder and uh, <laughs> president for many more companies to come. I'm so thrilled to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Molly. It's great to be here. Yeah. So, well, you know, I want to start with kind of, I always start with the simplest question of all. If you were to say, if you were to say, I have one title, Molly, this is what it is, other than chairman and co-founder. What would you say your your title is and what do you do? Tell us a little bit about that. I teach, coach, and mentor other startup people. Uh, so for, for many, many years, I ran tech companies. I ran Hotwire, which I started and sold to Expedia. I ran Zillow, which I started and took public. And now I'm at the stage of my career where I'm a coach. And I do that through the startups that I invest in, and I do it through the startups that I incubate and start myself, such as Picasso. But at the end of the day, I am a coach and mentor. You know what? I, I think that's what all the best leaders are, coach and mentor. I like that. Yeah. Um. Well, I want to go back a little bit because I have to believe this was in you from the very beginning. Tell us a little bit about kind of where you grew up and uh, who you were, you know, as a young Spencer, like eight. <laughs> um i i was always pretty intense as a uh as a youngster um that doesn't uh, surprise me <laughs> um and my kids you know i see that in in my kids now um i was entrepreneurial i started a um baking business where i would bake cookies and other snacks and sell them to neighbors and family friends um and i would trace uh trace art and sell the tracings to my parents and and others so i was always excited about trying to make money and trying to start businesses um what started and, that for you like what what made you think like hey i think i could sell this <laughs> um 
I don't know. It wasn't, I, I, I wasn't even then and now I wasn't excited about making money to spend it really. It was more about um, a scorecard, I think about uh, just kind of competition and wanting to win. And uh, that's what was motivating me then. And probably what still motivates me today. I, I also was quick to try to recruit people into my businesses. So my, my brother and my friends that I would, I would try to pull into these businesses. And again, that's something that I, I do to this day. That is so cool. That is so cool. Well, tell me a little bit about where you grew up and, sure. and uh, sort of major influences. Did you have any girls growing up, mentors? Yeah. Uh, so I grew up originally in New York City <clears throat> until I was 12. And then we moved to Los Angeles. And my mom was a teacher. My dad was an entrepreneur. And my grandparents and aunts and uncles were entrepreneurs. My uncle founded a, a very large billboard business, and my grandfather founded a very big um, men's apparel business. And my other grandfather, or my great grandfather, started a soda business. Um, uh, and my dad, oh, blood. Who, uh, I guess so. Um, there were definitely a lot of, of of influences to to draw upon. But my dad um, had a really interesting entrepreneurial story. He was an accountant that then um, he was a partner at an accounting firm and he met by happenstance the manager of the Rolling Stones who was in his accounting firm's office and was complaining that uh, that the Stones wouldn't hire or that this accounting firm wouldn't do work for the Stones because they were too uh, too much of a ne'er-do-well band. This was in the in the late 60s, early 70s. And so my dad took a leave of absence from the firm to be their tour accountant. And um, what started what started with with just that simple assignment ended up becoming a 40 year career in music where he was a tour producer and business manager for many, many rock groups, the Rolling Stones, U2, David Bowie, Pink Floyd, Paul Simon. And so I grew up as a kid uh, watching him build that business, touring with him uh, over the summer with my family in, in around the world and uh, going to a lot of Rolling Stones and U2 concerts. And um, watching cool him, it was super cool. But I, you know, I viewed it mostly as a as a cool from an entrepreneurial sense, more as much as cool from a from a music sense. So uh, he pivoted his business several times as the as the music industry shifted and formats changed from records to to tapes to CDs and then to streaming uh, and then. Um, so it was, I mean, I, that was very formative for me to just watch somebody take risk, leave a pretty, uh, a pretty staid profession of accounting in order to do something much more entrepreneurial and find success in it. It's to go from an accountant to something so, you know, yeah. hopeful or creative, right? I mean, it just seems a little unusual, not to suggest very, that all no, it, don't have that side to them, but you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I mean, I went from investment banking to startups, so it's it's not not dissimilar. But um, uh, I, I I do I think it it highlights something that I I tell to people all the time, especially young people, which is I think people tend to overstate risk, especially early in their career. They they say like, oh, I'm I have this six figure job and I'm on a good career path, and if I I leave to do a startup or if I or if I take on this new role within my company, it'll sort of take me off the track. And, um, I, I just, I think that's, I think that's really 
that's 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 um narrow thinking especially early in your career when the opportunity cost is pretty low when you have fewer entanglements and and personal and financial commitments you know that's the time to take risk and for most people they have pretty good backstops you know if my if my the music industry didn't work out for my dad he could go back to being an accountant he had that training if startups wasn't good didn't work out for me i could have gone back to investment banking i had that foundational uh, experience early in my career. So it, it was risky to leave Goldman Sachs to do a startup for me or for my dad to leave a, an accounting partnership to, to sure. work, you know, but, but, but not really, it's not, it's not real, you know, real risk is, is, um, is, is taking up arms to defend your country against, in you know, against occupying invaders. That's risky. Um, doing startups is not, not really risky. <laughs> this because I you know I, I've thought about this frankly myself and that is you know as you as you made the change to Goldman Sachs or even looking back at your father making the change um and I'm not certain how young you were when he decided to make that change I mean how stressful was that and and the reality is you know when you look back at that time starting out you know do did you have fun doing it I mean I I question myself sometimes when I when I think about things like this is I I probably was my best, you know, um, as what I'm going to call the struggling artist. Right. And, and you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to think about. Right. So. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, we we um, there is an interesting sort of grass is always greener kind of perspective where when you're in the struggle, it, it it's hard to appreciate. But. I, I think most people look back and say when they were working hardest, when they were poorest, I mean, with a lot of exceptions, obviously, but yeah. like, like, you know, w when I was in my early twenties and I had no money and was working my, my tail off and the future seemed really uncertain, that was a really exciting time of, of a lot of growth. And, um, I, 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 so, so putting yourself in those uncomfortable situations, especially if you have some sort of a safety net, academic or or financial or or, or social or or otherwise, um, earlier in your career, I think can be really valuable. Now, it doesn't. This doesn't just mean go to startups. It can mean taking that assignment. Uh, you know, moving from the U.S. to Europe or Asia for your company to uh, to take yourself off that career path and put yourself into being more of a big fish in a small pond even within your own company or taking on that project that, uh, you know, it seems kind of binary. It's it, if, if it succeeds, then it'll be really helpful to the company. If it doesn't, gosh, maybe we'll all get, uh, you know, we'll all lose our jobs. Like those types of career risks, I think can be very meaningful and, and, um, very few people regret those. Well, and it, it's really funny for me and, and I'm sure to some degree, I mean, you've been so successful in so many things, Spencer, but for me, I think it's why I love advisory is it's always like a startup. <laughs> I mean, yeah. There's that adrenaline that goes with every new assignment that frankly makes me every day fight to be the best I can because it's a whole new thing every single time, right? And so um, how is that as you're kind of moving through these different companies as a coach, um, as well as frankly, you know, taking investment in this, that's got to be a little scary too at the same time. And you know, tell me what it is that you like about sort of those new startups and things like that. Yeah, well, the context switching of startup investing and and doing advisory work can be challenging, but it's also 
exhilarating. I mean, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll end this podcast and I'll, I'll, I'll take a pitch meeting from a startup that's trying to build satellites and put them into orbit. And then I'll have a call with a prop tech company that is trying to figure out how to scale. And then, you know, I'll have to write a blog post about how startups should try to raise early stage venture funding. And then I'll have to write a speech for some other, th- I mean, it's like, it's, it's very varied and. And it's a challenge. And it's, it, it yes. sounds like you're constantly being challenged, not just intellectually, but you know, just about what the right thing is. Right. I mean, yes, cool. I, I think, I think, you know, the, 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 I, I remember one of my mentors, a venture, an operator. So an, an executive turned venture capitalist. I once asked him to help me, help me think through the differences between operating. So actually running, you know, working as a, as a, employee or an executive at a company and investing. And he said, you know how uh, when you're watching a football game, like, and they, they win a big game on the field, the team is so excited and they, you know, Gatorade on the coach and they're jumping up and down on the field. And then the camera always flashes to the, um, you know, the owner's booth where there's like, you know, a 70 year old, usually white male in a <laughs> coat and tie with cufflinks and his grandkid is there and his, you know, and he like awkwardly is high-fiving his third wife or something like that's, you know, that, I mean, this is, this happens like every day uh, football games. And um, he's like, that's sort of like venture capital. It's like, you're never down on the field in it. So the highs are not as high and the lows are not as low. And so I, I you know, I think it's, yeah. It, and so, I, th- I think that's a, having done this now for a couple of years of, of not operating of advising, I think that's a pretty fair description. Um, but the nice thing about it is, is it's really highly leveraged. So you can be in that owner's box and be watching 20 different games at the same time, <laughs> you know, on different fields, right, 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 playing right. different sports even. And that's sort of what I'm doing now where I'm able to, to um, just be highly leveraged rather than just focusing exclusively on one thing. Well, it's, it's really funny because it has to be exhilarating being on the field, but also it's got to be, you know, equally exhilarating one to be coaching, but also to see some of those successes come out of that coaching. Right. Yes, absolutely. That's just, just like a teacher, you know, takes great pride in their, in their students' success. Uh, That's certainly how I feel in the companies that I coach and mentor. Well, let's talk about when you were on the field. I'm going to start with probably the one uh, that was a really big part of your career with Zillow. Mm-hmm. Um, how did the whole Zillow thing start? And, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's such a great story. And I will tell you today, based on our research, it's the number one used, you know, search engine as it relates to finding a home. So you, you did yeah. a lot of great things. So, Thank you. Yeah. I mean, 200 million people still use it every month and it's uh, it's a verb. So we did a lot of things right at, at Zillow, of course. Um, in 2005, well, let me back up. The Zillow story starts a little bit before that. Expedia was started inside of Microsoft in the late 90s and then spun out and became a public company. I My first startup was called Hotwire, which we started in 99, and we sold it in 2003 to Expedia. So by 2005, I had been- Hotwire, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah, that, so that, that, was, that was my company and my team and my company, and we sold it to Expedia for about $700 million. I moved up to Seattle to work at Expedia, and I ran the hotel business at Expedia. And I'd been there for about two years and I had an entrepreneurial itch. I wanted to do another startup. I didn't really want to work at a big company where I felt like it was harder for an individual to have a great impact. And so 
I uh, I left Expedia about the same time that the founding team from Expedia, Rich Barton and Lloyd Frank, left. And we sat in a conference room with David Vitell and Kristen Acker, so four former Expedia people and me, former Hotwire person who sold my company to them. And we sat in a conference room for months, and we brainstormed. And at the time, we were all, or several of us, three of us were buying homes as well. And in Seattle, the King County website was pretty good back then. It had a lot of good county data. And a friend gave us an MLS login. And so we started building mashups of Google Maps, MLS data, and Seattle King County property data just for fun, just to help us buying our own homes. And we quickly realized that to our surprise, here we were, 2005, the internet was 10 years old. And they're really, even though there was Realtor.com and there were other you know, popular real estate sites, there was nothing out there that prioritized the consumer. Everything else back then prioritized the real estate professional, the brokerage sites, the lead gen sites, the even Realtor.com, which operated under the auspices of the National Association of Realtors, they all prioritized the industry. And so we felt that we could take some of the same Expedia and Hotwire DNA, which was to prioritize the consumer and provide information transparency. And that's where the idea for Zillow was born, was out of our own real estate shopping experience. And and just to just to elaborate a little bit further, we we then asked ourselves, having having decided, okay, we want to build a real estate website, and, and you know, there was no mobile at the time, so it was just a website. Um, we said, well, let's not start with listings. Listings are commoditized. You can see what's for sale on lots of different websites. Let's try to answer a different question. Uh, frankly, the more interesting question than what's for sale. And that question is, what's my house worth? And so the original idea for Zillow in 2006, when we launched, was to put a price on every rooftop to show everybody what their house was worth, what their neighbor's house was worth, what their ex-wife's house was worth, what their boss's house is worth. I don't know why I keep coming back to, uh, to, to <laughs> marital <fine>. issues. It's, <laughs> it's weird. Woke up on, on a weird side of the bed. I don't know. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Uh, okay. but, but, you know, see, seeing what your boss's house is worth is incredibly voyeuristic and fun. And so we, we thought that we'd probably have something there. And so we spent about six months after we came up with that idea, building that first version of the product, which just had Zestimates, home valuations. And it wasn't for two oh, more did years. Zestimates start from the very beginning? With they did. Yeah. It's, wow. it's, people don't realize this, but for, but for the first two years, Zillow only had Zestimates and, and public data from county websites. So bad, bad square footage, price history. There were no listings of homes for sale until 2018, two years into Zillow's existence. Zillow basically became a top three real estate site with no listings, just with valuations. And then the financial crisis happened and we called brokerages and MLSs and said, hey, can we get your listings? And because real estate was in such uh, was in such disarray that at that point, the brokerages and the industry overall uh, complied and, and gave Zillow listings. And, and that was really the supercharge. We took the company public, if I remember correctly, in 2011, I think. And when we went public, we had about a $600 million market cap. And then over the next eight or so years, we bought 17 companies and got up to about a $20 billion market cap. And then I retired about three years ago and started working on Picasso and, and my investing and other, other initiatives. It's so crazy. You'll laugh when I say this, but I don't remember life without Zillow. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <I laughs> That's crazy. That. That's crazy. Well, what do you think were the key ingredients to the company's success at the time? I mean, obviously the Zestimate was a big part of it, but um, it was really the only one of its kind for a while, right? 
Yeah, I mean, evaluations clearly were were um, as I say, sort of voyeuristic, both useful but also fun. Um, but I think the key the key um, the key reasons that Zillow succeeded, I'd say number one was the consumer orientation. Uh, number two was the extraordinary team that we were able to build, build, and a lot of those folks, early folks, came from Expedia and Hotwire. But um, obviously, the team expanded far beyond that. I think number three, there was surely some timing advantage, and um, in particular, we benefited from the financial crisis because Zillow had already raised enough venture capital and started to achieve some escape velocity when the GFC happened and. Um, at that point, there was really very little competition because venture capitalists didn't make investments in prop tech for a number of years. And that's relevant because we're seeing the same thing this time around <laughs> where, right. um, you know, there's a lot of hand wringing from prop tech companies of, oh my God, the market is so bad. But what I keep telling my companies is if they can survive, if they can just make it to the other side of this chasm, they're going to be sitting pretty because, uh, you know, there's going to be this this competitive wasteland from companies that don't get funded or don't get started over these next couple of years. So it can be a silver lining. Um, so, so the timing, uh, I'd say we had two timing advantages. Number one was the financial crisis, but number two was the mobile shift. So when the iPhone opened up an app store, Zillow immediately pivoted to mobile. We switched the name of the company from Zillow.com to Zillow. We prioritized our whole development team to mobile and, um, you know, we, we just crushed it on mobile and real estate is the ultimate mobile experience. Like when it's, when you're driving around looking at homes, that's really when you want the power of Zillow in your pocket or in your hand. And so we, we benefited greatly from that. And, and the ABM model that drove this estimate portion of that, how was that derived? Uh, we built it I'm ourselves. That was derived yeah. from an ABM model. It, right. Yeah, no, we, we built it ourselves and we hired, a lot of great analytics folks, including Stan Humphreys, who ran yep. business, business intelligence and analytics at Expedia for many years, and he was one of our first key hires at Zillow. Um, to give to give listeners some sense of the improvement over the years, in 2006, when we launched, we had 40 million estimates with a 14% error rate. And today, Zillow has 100 million estimates, so two and a half times more, basically the whole country with about a three-ish percent error rate. So much, much more accurate on many more homes. So you can get a sense from, from that impressive. data of, uh, I, mean, I guess you could look at it either way. You could say, wow, you weren't very accurate when you first launched. Um, or you could say, That's wow, it's pretty impressive. A lot. And you know, both those things are true. And and I'd say over time, I mean, it, we, we were a very early adopter of cloud. So we were one of AWS's first big customers. And the power of cloud computing allows Zillow to do huge amounts of burst computations. It would be prohibitively expensive for Zillow to have to own all those servers on premise. But because of the power of cloud, Zestimates are able to be much more accurate. Um, and then another big development was just the growth of artificial intelligence and machine learning and computer vision. So all of these buzzwords, cloud, AI, ML, you know, computer right. vision, they all are front and center, central to this estimate and to the growth of Zillow. You know, I think the other interesting part about uh, the Zestimate is, is it's somewhat engaging for every consumer. Like I know for me, immediately I wanted to go in and correct it, right? Like mm -hmm. what was on it. 
<laughs> and just say, well, wait, I think you're off because you don't have all these things because I've done so many stupid remodels to my house or whatever, you know. But I, I think there's something engaging about it that makes every person who owns a home want to check it, right? So that's exposure at its nth degree, right? Well, yeah, yeah. So you'll you'll love this story uh, in, in that in that way. Um, when we pre-launch, we 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 thought we could ship the product, um, you know, at a, a particular point in time. I think three or four months after we came up with the idea, but we delayed by a month or two in order to add what we called my e my estimator uh, from the first version of the product. And what my estimator did was it allowed people to claim their home and edit their home facts. And the reason for that was we knew when we came out with all these estimates, there would be many inaccuracies because we didn't have up-to-date information about people's homes. And so we decided to delay the the first launch in order to add that pretty small feature to give people something to do about it. And I use this example a lot because I, I I start I talk to founders all the time who are trying to figure out, you know, when to launch and what feature set to launch with. And usually in tech in Silicon Valley, the um, you know, the bias is towards just, just ship, 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 you know, ship things as quickly as you can. And there's a famous phrase in tech, which is if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, you've probably waited too long to ship it. And while I generally agree with that sentiment, there are some times when you only get one chance to make a first impression. And sometimes it is worth holding up that first launch in order to, to make sure that it, it has the feature set that you really think you need. Well, so on that note, Spencer, what what would you do different now looking back at anything you did at Zillow? Anything? Um, oh, let's see. Wow. Um, I mean, we gosh, I mean, there are a lot of things that come to mind initially. I have to think through whether, you know, whether they would really stick on on further analysis. I mean, where I where I immediately went was on the in-person versus remote situation. So Zillow was, when I was CEO, we were a very in-person focused company. Like everyone had to be in the office all the time. And we always had employees that wanted to work remotely, work from home, et cetera. And we, you know, we never allowed it. In fact, one of the reasons that I left Zillow about three years ago, I retired was I had moved back to Los Angeles where I grew up and I was commuting from LA to Seattle every week. And that had grown so tiresome that, that it was time for me to, for me to hang up my spurs. And um, of course, you know, now all of that has been called into question and Zillow has become a remote first company. So I guess, it, you know, had I to do it over again, I, I probably would have been more now Now that we as, as a society have seen that that people can actually be pretty darn efficient remotely. Sure. I, I probably would have leaned into that a lot earlier um, and not not been so resistant. Um, what else? Uh, you know, I mean, I think Zillow is still trying to figure out its mortgage strategy, still trying to build a mortgages business. I think I, I probably would have built that out, invested in it earlier. Um, it wasn't something that we focused on for you know for very a very long time, and um, that's clearly a huge opportunity. Huge. Um, you know, the i buying thing we can we can talk about that. You know, if, if you want, there are some ups and downs, and it's a long sorted story. Um, uh, well, are... that's that's definitely one of my questions for you, which is okay. <laughs> what should they do different? You know, based on what you've seen, because sure, certainly that was a huge you know thing that uh, Zillow tripped on a little bit. Certainly, when you left, for sure, uh, for sure, so, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, so just to just to tell that part of the story, then, um, you know, since you brought it up, um, <laughs> um, you know, I so so I led Zillow into i buying, and it was the right decision at the time, and the reason it was is because consumers love selling their home to an iBuyer. 
the net promoter score of, of, of home sellers, you know, selling their home this way is extremely high. And I was worried, right? I believe rightfully that if open door and offer pad got too big and became 10 or 20% of the market in some cities, that that would present an existential threat to Zillow. And um, when I was running Zillow, we were charging about a 10% fee to sellers. So we'd say, hey, your home is worth $400,000. We're going to give you 360000 for it. So we're going to basically charge you a $40,000 fee. And now you seller can pick your closing date and you can go buy your next house because you know you'll have 360K in hand. And that $40,000, that 10% fee was enough to cover Zillow's renovation costs, the selling commissions, the uh, interest expense, uh, and you know, and, and all the other all the other specifics of the, of the flipping business, and we were doing it profitably or nearly profitably. And tell um, me this: Why did yeah. you think that the customer would pay above the five to six percent that they could do with a and? in-person realtor or the more um, traditional format. Yeah. Well, I, we, I wasn't sure they would, but the data then proved that they, they, they did and would after we just started doing it. But, but the reason that the, that the, the seller does it is a couple of reasons. Number one, the speed and certainty associated with selling their home that way is worth, is worth the premium uh, above the five or 6%. And then number two, um, the, uh, the renovation, you know, it's, it's like when an agent walks your house, they typically point out $15,000 of refurbishments that they ask you to do before you sell your house. And they say, oh, you need to paint that door and fix that lock and fix that window. And these are all things that never bothered you enough about your house when you lived in it. And now your agent is telling you that you have to fix these things for the next owner. Right. And so, um, yes, a, a 6 to 10% fee is higher than a 5 to 6% fee. A 6 to 10% fee to an iBuyer is higher than a 5 to 6% fee to a real estate agent. But you're not doing any refurbishments you're and you're not holding any open houses and you're not keeping your house show ready um and you're not enduring the three to six months that it's going to take you to sell your house and the stress and uncertainty of that so and it's the convenience factor right i yes, mean if i, if I get absolutely. to a point where say i lose my job or something like that i have to sell my home and I, there's just a sanity in saying hey they're going to do it quick and and that's worth an additional four percent the, the the problem is that after i after i left um, Zillow switched the fee from, uh, from about 10% to 1%. Holy and crap. they, they did that to try to gain market share on offer pad and open door. And so now all of a sudden what happens, the consumer is being offered $396,000. The acceptance rate goes way up. All of a sudden, everybody says, yes, thank you. When, you know, when do I get my money? And that and, has to be their goal as market share by doing. Yes. So, so they were, Brave they were crazy. However you look at it. That's exactly right. They were trying to buy market share by lowering the fee. And so the acceptance rate went way up and predictably they lost a lot of money because the $4,000 on average doesn't cover all the selling commissions that Zillow had to pay and the refurbishment costs and the interest expense and the taxes and everything else. And were they so, still going in and refurbishing though? Yes, yes, okay. yes. So um, so it was, a, it was a real tactical error that my successors made. And very unfortunate in my view. And then when they lost a lot of money, they decided to withdraw from iBuying entirely, which I think is personally, I think is a mistake. And so, um, uh, and unfortunately they then laid off 2000 people and the market, and they lost 10, you know, billions and billions of dollars of market cap. So, um, Anyway, I am still a believer in iBuying. I think that it, there is a there's a place for it. It just you have to charge a high enough fee 
to do it profitably. And the fee that Zillow decided to to charge was one that was unsustainably, you know, too low, and um, and a predictable outcome ensued. It does seem unusual that they would go to such an extreme difference. I'm, I'm other than market share, which that seems to be. Uh, that's it. It's it's op open door. You know, companies do companies. It's 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 frust again. It's frustrating for somebody who helped build the 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 culture there because companies do crazy things when they become competitor obsessed. And one thing I'm proud of from my 15 years of running Zillow was that we were never competitor obsessed. We were always consumer obsessed. And um, but Zillow launched something called Project Catch Up to catch up with Open Door, and they became competitor obsessed and. Um, that's, that caused them to make this error of lowering the fee too, too much. Interesting. Interesting. Looking at, uh, them today, anything else you would do different? Zillow hasn't, Zillow lost its, its opportunity for leadership in the rentals space, partly because of the focus on iBuying. And I'll take some responsibility for that one, um, which is to say, we we spent a couple years building out this i buying business, and rentals didn't get the resources or or strategic focus or attention, and as a result, CoStar zoomed ahead. CoStar oh bought. Oh my god, CoStar's um, killing it. Right yeah, now. CoStar bought Apartments.com and a number of other assets, and CoStar became the clear number one in rentals. Zillow coulda, shoulda, woulda have that leadership, and one of the reasons that CoStar's market cap is thirty billion. And Zillow's market cap is five billion, is because of CoStar's leadership in rentals. I mean, most of the reason for that disparity is because of Zillow's operational missteps in the iBuying space. Because the the um, you know the two were similar market cap when I was CEO, and and you know and it, we weren't winning. It Zillow wasn't winning in rentals at the time. So, but but anyway, had I to do it over again, I would have I would have um, made sure we didn't lose in rentals. It's kind of interesting when you look at the share of rental versus for sale, why that would make such a huge difference in their market cap. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it goes beyond that. I mean, CoStar's core business in the commercial real estate space is 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 so very just the combination. Solid. Yeah, um, gotcha. and and then uh, you know, it's also it's an interesting sort of capital markets observation, which is. When companies get in the penalty box, they really get in the penalty box. So, and and on the other hand, when companies delight, they you know delight investors, they stay there for they they have a lot of credibility with the investor community. So, in the case of CoStar, they've just have a very long track record now, uh, on uh, you know of of um of solid financial performance, and so they traded a premium multiple. To, to Zillow, who is in, as I say, sort of in this penalty box where they have to now rebuild investor trust from, from the mistakes that have been made over the last two years. Well, as you look back at Zillow, what are you most proud of? Definitely the culture that we created. So it was a very special company and culture, and we won many, many, many best places to work awards and um, Glassdoor and LinkedIn and others. And my CEO approval rating was near, you know, in the high nineties and et cetera. It was a place that people really loved to work. And that's because it was mission oriented. And because we were an early leader in what is becoming more commonplace, or at least it was before this recession, which is encouraging employees to bring their whole selves to work. You know, we were focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion before it was a buzzword. 
we were, we built out affinity groups and employee resource groups and ways for employees to just feel part of something bigger than themselves. Um, and again, it's one of the reasons why uh, these missteps of the last couple of years are a little bit frustrating because the the layoffs that have ensued and the um, dissonance, um, the strategic dissonance um, impacts the employee experience. And so uh, anyway, that's definitely what I'm most proud of was the employee culture that we built. You know, culture doesn't come easy either. I mean, that that's not easy to create. So no. you should be really proud of that. I mean, that's Thank that's you. totally leadership driven. And of course, um, you know, I, I always believe that with leadership, leadership is 100% about your people. So mm-hmm. that's pretty great. Well, Thank let's you. talk a little bit about what you're doing now. I love uh, the whole story behind Picasso and what you're doing there too. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Sure. Uh, well, I'm I'm at my Picasso, um, nice. <laughs> where I where I don't have a great uh, podcasting setup, but the good <laughs> the good news is that my Picasso is is on the ocean uh, here in in Malibu. And I like how you refer to it as your Picasso. Uh, cool. it, it, yeah. So so this is this is my personal Picasso where I'm talking to you from today that I own in Malibu. So I own one eighth of this home, and the way Picasso works is we fractionalize homes and we let people experience them through co-ownership. So we sell them in eighths. Some people buy two eighths or three eighths. One eighth equates to about six weeks a year. And Picasso does the property management for the home. You schedule your visits to your home through the Picasso app. And then we have owner lockers on property where you can keep all your stuff here in storage. Do you buy it through a Picasso app as well? Um, sort of, I mean, you, you see the listings on the Picasso app or the Picasso website and but I mean, ultimately, you, you do complete the transaction offline. It's it's a real estate transaction. You're buying one sure. eighth of the home through an LLC. Um, but um, but Picasso uh, handles that listing, that whole experience, what that is. Yes. Does Picasso also work with an agent to show? The home yes. Or? Yes. So Picasso does basically everything and with with agents and property managers. So, for example, our homes are listed on the MLS. And so you'll find Picasso homes on realtor.com, on Redfin, on the IDX powered MLS sites. And um, agents that show those homes, they get paid full commission by Zillow. And um, when Zillow buys homes, we pay commissions to agents on the buy side and the sell side. So Zillow, uh, Picasso is definitely not um, disrupting real estate agents. Um, we do the property management ourselves. We basically have created a seamless second home ownership. So, you know, if you, like we're trying to democratize access to second home ownership by making it so much easier and more affordable. The reason that we sell in eighths in in one in six weeks increments is that is the unit of time that even when you own all of a second home, on average, that's how much people use their second home is is one eighth of the time. And so, um, you know, we we just we can dramatically increase the accessibility of second home ownership by lowering the price. So we're in 40 markets in four countries. We just passed a billion dollars of revenue in our second year in business. We've got a couple hundred employees. We've raised a couple hundred million, about 200 plus million of, of equity from some top tier venture capitalists. And we do really well in the Southern California beach areas. We do really well in Napa Valley, in Tahoe, Aspen, Vail, Jackson Hole, uh, Cabo, London, and, um, and, and Miami and, and South Florida. 
Nice. So, so I remember seeing pictures of your home in Malibu. You're sitting literally on the beach. It's spectacular. And you've got six weeks out of the year there. How does that work? How does the, yeah. Well, so, so I mean, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm leaving this afternoon. You know, I've had this for the last week or so. Um, I, I have no idea you know, who, who the other co-owners are, nor do I want to know. You're not really, I mean, you can know if you want, but like by design, it's, you, you know, you, it doesn't matter. Um, so when I leave later today, Picasso property management and housekeeping will come in, clean the house, turn the house. And then tomorrow, some one of the other seven folks will check into the house and they'll have it for anywhere from a couple of days to two or three weeks. And I'll just open the Picasso app to schedule my next visit. Um, usually people ask how scheduling works, you know, doesn't everybody want to be there at the same time as a common question. And the answer is, um, that there are a bunch of rules in the, in the app. So you can schedule up to two years out. Um, you can, the minimum length of stay is two nights. The maximum is 14 or 21, depending upon the city. You can hold two of the next eight national holidays, et cetera. There are a bunch of rules oh. that basically create for equitable distribution of, of the, uh, of the home. And, um, it works out very, very well. And I think the reason it works out well is, um, you know, first of all, for people who want a little more control of the calendar, they'll buy two eighths. So they'll buy a quarter, which, you know, some people buy three eighths. We have a lot of people who have two or three Picassos. Um, so a pretty I frequent, see that. that'd be really cool. Yeah. I mean, a pretty frequent situation would be somebody would say, you know what, My, I've got kids. I really want to live and, you know, I want to start forming memories um, okay, I'm going to get a second home in Tahoe and I have a million dollars to spend. And then they'll start shopping and they'll see that a million dollars doesn't get you very much in Tahoe or in any of these vacation destinations. And it, so instead of spending a million dollars to buy all of a mediocre home in one of these places, they'll spend, say, half a million dollars to buy an eighth of a $4 million home through Picasso. And so now all of a sudden- And you don't have to take care of it. I mean, the part yes. that- that really, I I shy away from on the second home experiences. Yep. My sister had a home up in Big Bear, and it was just all the maintenance related, yep, yep, right? Yep, and totally. so I just don't want to maintain it. Picasso does it all. So, um, you know, it's uh, I, I got here. I mean, I got you know th this morning. I I turned on the sink, and there was no water. So I pulled out the Picasso app. I messaged the Picasso home manager. Five minutes later, they said, we talked to the water company. There's a water main break in Malibu. There's no water anywhere. It'll be on soon. So like, I mean, Perfect. I didn't, I, you know, uh, one time I arrived and the fireplace didn't work. I messaged the Picasso home manager. Three hours later, someone was here to turn on the pilot light. I mean, it's like if, if you own a second home, you spend the first two or three days of your vacation fixing everything that broke while right. you were gone. <laughs> and, and here it's, they're better maintained and they're occupied. I mean, one of the problems with second homes is they sit empty all the time and that right. is actually much worse for the houses, but well, um, and all year long maintaining it. So it's yes, not even exactly, just maintaining exactly. it when you're there. Exactly. Right. So, I mean, in, in that, in that use case where instead of spending a million dollars on a mediocre home, they now spend $500,000 on a $4 million home. They then spend the other $500,000 to get a home in Miami or Malibu or Cabo. And they spend the, they just spent the same million dollars on second home ownership, but they end up with two four million dollar homes that are totally maintained i mean that's, that's pretty awesome yeah so so my co-founder is austin allison he was a zillow executive and and was awesome he started a company called dot loop that zillow acquired and then we worked together there for four years a lot of the leadership um followed us from zillow to picasso and it, the company's doing very very well 
That's terrific. That's super cool. So it technically it's, it's like a fractional, it's real home ownership. Um, and how, when did you guys start it? We started about two years ago, sort of right at the beginning of COVID. And, um, you know, we weren't really sure what, what, what was going to happen to a startup launching right at COVID. But what has happened is that most people have a permanent step change in their ability to spend time in a second home because they can work remote at least some of the time. And so this right. has boosted interest and demand for second home ownership to record levels. And Picasso is a much more affordable and, and seamless way to own a second home. So we've had a great tailwind the last couple of years as, as COVID has changed the way people live and work. I would imagine, I would imagine. What's the turnover? Uh, sorry, turnover, meaning the Turn, revenue turnover, or... meaning they buy it. How long do they typically hold it for? Maybe too oh. soon to ask that question, but just yeah, curious. no. Um, so we've had 25 or so resales. So we've had, you know, in fact, um, the, this Picasso that I'm sitting in in Malibu that I own, I bought it as a resale. So one of the original eight owners bought it and then wanted to switch to a different Picasso. So they relisted it and I bought there. So we've had uh, 25 or so resales. I think the average appreciation for those has been 15% a year. Um, of wow. course, we've only been around for two years, but um, uh, pretty good. But but most people aren't you know aren't selling them. I mean, we've done many many. Uh, most people just own it and enjoy it so far. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Let, let's talk a little bit about Path. So share what that's about. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I incubated five companies over the last couple of years, and one of them was a company called Path Travel, which is basically TikTok for travel. And this was inspired by the time I spent on the board of TripAdvisor, where, um, I mean, as I mentioned, I started Hotwire and I was Expedia. So I've always been interested in online travel, and I've always sort of struggled with user-generated content on these travel sites because it is of mixed utility. You know, if you, if you really want to know where to go in Paris, reading what the average of a hundred thousand sort of random people want to do in Paris is useful, but more useful would be for you to see what your close friends think in Paris. So travel sort of benefits from a social layer on top of user generated content. And then it's like Facebook for travel. Well, sort of. The, the The second problem is that the user experience of a TripAdvisor or Yelp is very static and very sort of 1995. It's words and pictures. And, um, you know, we've seen obviously TikTok and, and Instagram and, and YouTube show more visual formats and, and, and how appealing they are. So um, anyway, I have a couple companies that are focused on on this overall theme. Recon Food is one of them, which is a food social network, Path Travel, which is sort of TikTok for travel. Q, which is um, sort of like what good what Goodreads is to books. Q is to streaming content. What they're all basically doing is taking um, something that was horizontal and breaking it down into a vertical. So just focus on travel, just focus on food, just focus on streaming rather than horizontal social media like an Instagram, which has all sorts of content. Um, so one of my investing themes is that social media is breaking into specific verticals. I like that actually, because you're sort of organizing the content. That makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, you, you see it with other platforms like Strava, for example, which does this for running or all right. trails does it for hiking or Fitbit or right. Peloton. So there are some categories that are big enough and people are passionate enough about that. If they, if there's, if it has its own vertical social network, then the more is for that community change. So for example, 
it would be weird for you to post your run in Instagram. You know, I ran 2.8 miles in, in 14 minutes, blah, blah, blah. Like, and you, you could Although put some that of my friends do. Some do. <laughs> and you probably think that's a little weird, I'm guessing. Um, and, but on Strava, which is a running community, it's totally right. normal. And everybody there is doing that. And that's what it's for. Um, LinkedIn well, is you're like looking this. for other runs, right? I mean, I'm curious as mm -hmm. to where other people are going because I get bored sometimes with, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Well, I mean, LinkedIn does this for your career, right? The things that you post on right. LinkedIn, I just gave a speech. I just did this podcast. That's normal. But I mean, if you put that type of stuff on, on Instagram, like it, it might be okay if you have kind of a public professional Instagram, but if your friends, it, it might seem boastful. The, the point is that these different, because social media has, has become so ubiquitous that it, it it's in some verticals, it's breaking into, into category specific communities. And I think it should because of the amount of time people are spending on it. Right. So it, to me, Facebook is really more of like a family and friend experience. And it kind of annoys me when people do a bunch of business on it. Right. And then LinkedIn, same thing. When somebody throws up sort of a story about like something that just seems so off for business, you're like, huh, what's up with right. that? <laughs> right. Well, I right. can see that. Yeah. That makes sense to me. So. Um, anyway, so that that's what a number of my of my startups are, are trying to build. <laughs> so here's an interesting thing for you, because as I was reading about PAV, and I, I think this would be such a great, uh, you, you should coach somebody into this, you know, because the whole metaverse is becoming such a big deal, is to be able to visit places in a virtual world and to be able to see some of those great places, you know, with goggles or whatever. I mean, that's becoming such a mainstream sort of way to experience things and i don't think that goes away i think it continues to get more and more extreme as we sort of grow and what a great way to visit you yeah know, some of these well great it's, places. it's it's funny so i had some friends over here at this picasso last night and um and i a friend of mine brought uh an oculus vr yeah. headset and he was showing he works at picasso this 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 friend of mine and he was showing my other friends other picassos in vr using exactly and i mean it's so immersive and you know you can you can look up and see how high the ceilings are and you can look down over the balcony staircase and you can look your to your left out to the pool and you're right out to the backyard and um and you feel like you're doing a real tour of that home and so Picasso has invested very heavily in these things, both Matterport on the desktop and 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 phone, but also VR tours. And obviously, home builders do this well. There are many home builders do this well, also. Well, it's it's really funny. That's always been one of my challenges with virtual reality: is you can't experience the volume when you walk into a home. You can't experience nearly the same kind of light. But with the Oculus technology or things like that, you you really can today. And uh, it's funny, my son just came back from college. He literally designed his entire room around this Oculus technology because he uses it for so many different things. And so as I experienced it with him and he said, you got to try this, mom. Cool. I, you know, and of course I've done those headsets a, a zillion times, but in the world in which he showed it to me, which is largely gaming and and some of that other stuff, I mean, it's it's pretty magical. And yeah. I, I have to believe that continues to transform how we shop in all things or experience that, right? Well, the a um, couple of the biggest companies in the world are betting tens of billions of dollars on it. So, <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely going to make a big difference. Well, so a quick, I'm going to do a couple of things with you personally. Uh, favorite sport? Football. Favorite team? Dolphins. 
oh my god my son would love you <laughs> i love the dolphins okay favorite uh pastime pastime uh yes. cooking 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 favorite thing to cook chocolate chip cookies oh <laughs> you're you're like the best guy ever that's amazing okay place to vacation cabo nice okay so mind you i love cabo okay word association real quickly uh what comes to mind when i say quality control affordable <laughs> housing yeah right i know what's the answer to affordable housing uh more pro development uh policies legislation you know governmental uh, regime regulatory well, and, and and to some degree i thought you were going to say picasso <laughs> we 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 do talk about it that yeah. way for sure we we say it's like carpooling it's like carpooling takes eight people that would have otherwise clogged up the road with eight different cars and they put them into one car and that's what we do we take eight people that would otherwise have wanted right. to own a house in wherever and we carpool them into into one home um, so yes, we, we do think that we're part of the solution now. I mean, we don't, we don't talk about it as affordable housing because these are multi-million dollar luxury homes, but that's what I was going to say. You're affordable <laughs> in the luxury world of things, right? Exactly. Exactly. Right, but, right. but it does, it lessens demand on what, what it does is it actually moves those people out of the mid tier. So think to my example where I said you might have a million dollars, which is mid tier in a lot of these destinations takes them out of that. And it moves them into luxury tier. So we we take one $4 million home off the market instead of eight $500,000 homes being taken off the market by the eight buyers. Well, and sincerely, when you showed me the experience you had with your home in Manhattan, as you were showing those images, it was probably the first time in my own mind that I thought, I could afford that. That's pretty yeah. great. Yeah. Good, um, good, good. What comes to mind when you hear the word inspirational? free association for inspiration will be music i'm not sure why but that's where i went <laughs> you know what that that probably has some association with your dad i would bet maybe <laughs> pretty cool um when when you have a podcast of your own right i do two i have two actually so I, so what are both of those podcasts uh dad i have a question where my son asks me questions about stuff and uh and then office hours which is sort of like this one where i interview other other founders and tech execs Okay, so on dad, I have a question. What was the best question you were ever asked? Uh, what is, well, actually it was prescient, it turns out, but what is inflation? That was more than a year ago before we really had inflation. And, uh, and how old was your son when he asked that? Uh, he was probably he was probably 12. Oh, what a great, and what was your answer? I'm curious. I'm not certain how I would answer. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, inflation is, you know, I, I think I use an well, example. Things get of, expensive, honey. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I mean, you can use an example. A lot of good examples for stuff like that come from um, uh, like uh, fairgrounds. Like imagine you're at uh, the county fair and you've got money and tickets. And now all of a sudden someone comes in and just dumps like 50,000 tickets into the economy and gives everybody more tickets. Well, what would happen? Well, everyone would be in line, you know, for the rides. And now all of a sudden the, the price of the toys would go up, et cetera. So. And it takes longer. Well, good answer. <laughs> what about for office hours? Give me your, I'm not going to make you pick one, pick two. Sachin Adela, the CEO of Microsoft, did a great one about uh, how he rebooted the Microsoft corporate culture once he became CEO. And how do you do it? Encouraging risk taking and 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 just driving higher level of employee engagement. And then, you know, the military ones. I've had a couple of generals and 
yeah oh gosh I'm, i can't remember the name of the general but the the one i really love was was um uh he's talking about how to motivate in the military and what he learned from he was the commander in afghanistan and iraq and it was just wow. a great podcast you know it's it's really interesting uh we've done a lot with uh navy seals and i've gone to so many different events around navy seals and when you look at the intensity in which they perform and all of they do it's it's incredible it's incredible that we have the honor to be served by these just amazing people. For uh, sure, no question. It's, uh, it's hard to fathom, hard to even just think about the experiences that they go through every day for us. It's pretty cool. Well, as we look to kind of leaders in your world, um, what are you looking for when you're picking top talent? Um, I look for people that are mission oriented and people that can attract other great people to, to our, to our mission and, and to whatever it is we're trying to accomplish. Great answer. Great answer. Well, looking back at your whole world, you've had so many experiences and you're still so young. It's crazy, but who have been your top leaders? I mean, who have influenced you the most? Oh boy. Um, a lot of peers. I think Jeff Weiner is, he did a great job at, at LinkedIn, Sachin Dell at Microsoft, um, uh, Dick Costello when he was running Twitter. I thought those were all great leaders. Spencer, thank you so much for joining us. We absolutely appreciate you being on the call with us today. And I can't thank you. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you again for joining us. This is Molly Carmichael, and I hope you enjoyed this series. Please hit like if you like today's broadcast and subscribe if you'd like to hear more from the best and the brightest in our industry. Take care, everyone, and I hope you join us again next time.